This podcast is made possible through donations from listeners like you and our partners at Tallman Equipment. They pride themselves on equipping their customers with the tools they need to get the job done right. They are dedicated to set the standard for quality, convenience, and reliability. At Tallman, your opinion is important to them. Rate and review any product or tool you've used on their new website at tallmanequipment.com. Line 11 Clothing Company, making apparel for their first responders with a positive message to patriots that you can be proud of. A proceed of the cost goes to helping our foundation ignite the fire for father engagement. Give them a follow at Line11Clothing on Instagram. You could also find them or email them at Line11Clothing at Yahoo.com. And last but not least, Monzingo Knives. Each knife is created with craftsmanship that only a tradesman could provide. Find them on Instagram at Monzingo Knives and get your American-made Monzingo knife today. Welcome to the Show Up Dad podcast for hardworking fathers. At the Show Up Dad, we recognize that fathers providing for their children is certainly important. But when men truly understand their unique role and gain the knowledge and skills to be great fathers, they can transform and impact future generations. Our guest today is none other than Charles Catchings. He is the founder and host of the Barbershop Group and podcast. He is an addictions counselor and a father to seven children, as well as a vocal mental health advocate for men. Welcome to the show, Charles. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. Absolutely, Charles. Hey, uh, the other day I posted on social media about the how a man is blessed whose quiver is full, you know, and that's quoting Psalms 127.5. And brother, right. you're definitely blessed. <laughs> Seven children, <laughs> man, that's that's got to be a lot, bro. <laughs> it, sometimes uh, sometimes it, it definitely feels like it's more than seven. Uh, but David, I tell you, you know, years in, um, you, you get used to it. You get used to it and you just learn how to, how to manage everybody and, and keep it moving. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, if I could have you give our listeners a brief history of your family origin, your father, your mother, and growing up, stuff like that, Charles, that'd be great. Well, you know, uh, I grew up, uh, for the most part, I grew up in the, in the Midwest. Um, spent some time um, out on the East Coast as well, but I, I spent most of uh, my time in the St. Louis, Missouri area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my, my mother's family, um, they were both in the Mississippi area as well as the Caribbean, right? Uh, my, my, my mom's uh, mother was a traveling uh, missionary, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, did some other stuff, and, and that's how they ended up in Mississippi, and then you know continued north. Um, my dad's family—they've um, been in the area uh, for quite some time after you know migrating north from from Mississippi. So you're talking about, in, in both cases, uh, descendants of slaves, uh, and then all of that. And uh, they, like I said, they settled there in that area. And um, yeah, man, that's uh, that's where I spent uh, a lot of my time. So I grew up being. Uh, uh, a big St. Louis Cardinals fan and uh, and all of that stuff. <laughs> mm, right on. Uh, Charles, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your father. How big of an impact did he have on you growing up? Yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting question, Dave, because, uh, you know, when I was, um, when I, I don't remember my father well until I was about seven years old, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, because my mom and I, we were kind of like, we were transient. Uh, we were jumping around from house to house, living with family, you know, relatives, uh, staying at a community shelter, 
stuff like that. And then later on, my mom gets, um, she gets um, uh, a housing voucher mm-hmm. in a short. And then that's when my dad finally comes and he lives with us. And I'm like, okay, so this is dad. Got it. Uh, from about seven years old until maybe, I would say, about 20. Yeah, about from seven until 20. You know, dad was the enforcer. He was angry a lot. He was still figuring out how to be a parent. They, uh, he was dealing with a lot of what we now know as anxiety. Um, you know, he was working a, a very low-wage job, $3 an hour, uh, feeling a lot of pressure from that. Also trying to navigate um, certain areas where racism was definitely a thing to be, to be, to be addressed. Uh, but also dealing with some internal things as well, some, some parts of himself that he just disliked that he was struggling with, right? So from 7 to 20, mm-hmm. my dad was fire and brimstone. <clears throat> After that, my dad turned into my best friend, right? So young adulthood, um, we found ourselves kind of reconnecting and sharing very intimate things with each other and uh, talking for hours on end. And that continues today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been away from my father, away from home for about 21 years, uh, but I can talk to my dad for hours and hours now. Hmm. Now, going back, Charles, mm-hmm. those obstacles that you faced, how did you overcome them? Like, how did you not allow them to shape your future? Well, you, you know, it, it was tough, right? Because mm-hmm. so here's an interesting part uh, about that. You know, growing up inner city, America, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, um, I am going to school with a lot of a uh, lot of white kids who are extremely smart. I happen to be smart, so I, when I go to school, I'm in a different world. When I come home, I'm in another world, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very difficult to to deal with because I had family members who shamed me for being smart. They told me I talk white. They called me a Republican babe, um, and it really hurt a lot, right? Mm-hmm. It took a long time to get past those family expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned to, over time, and a lot of therapy and everything, get comfortable in my skin and uh, and use natural resources and things that I've learned to my advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and thankfully, I had some teachers who were able to help me see um, uh, the social constructs and the limited expectations that people had and kind of break through some of those walls. Mm-hmm. Wow, no, and that's good for teachers, man. I mean, where would we be if we didn't have them, you know, or mentors, you know, in our lives? Right. Um, I wanted to ask you: Do you feel that comparison is the thief of a, a thief of joy? Um, yeah, I, I think I think it definitely can be, mm-hmm. um, especially in this day and age where uh, social media is out front and mm-hmm. center for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, and I mean, it's always not to blame social media because there's always been some type of media that gave us a picture of what life was supposed to be like, right? Look at this guy with his nice Porsche, or look at this guy with this hot girl, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, uh, can make you think that the grass is greener on the other side, and you lose uh, the ability to be grateful. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think when you when you get used to looking up at everybody else and seeing all the nice things that they, you think they have, or or having an interpretation of what their life is, yeah, it can definitely rob you of joy. Mm-hmm. 
And I like that you touched on grateful. You know, I think that's a lot of the things that are going on with people these days is gratitude. There seems like there's less and less of it. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. The grass is not necessarily greener on the other side. I mean, right. I could talk to a lot of different people and they'll be like, don't do that. It's not worth it. It isn't greener. You know what I mean? And one of the, uh, one of the things a friend of mine always used to say was that the grass is only greener because someone's crap is in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, but, um, moving on, Charles, um, I wanted to ask you, would you agree that at the core of most fathers, it's to serve as a provider, right? And if most fathers who are absent knew that their family would starve in their absence, they would remain in the home. Do you think that to be true or? Um, I think mostly true, Dave. I, I think mm -hmm. that naturally a lot of guys feel like they're supposed to do something for their families, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that we go through stages of maturation where it hits us a little harder as we age in some cases, right? Uh -huh. um, but I generally think that that all guys feel like, you know, I'm supposed to mean something. I'm supposed to have value for my family in some regard. We may not agree uh, how that value is displayed, but, yeah, I, I think that every guy wants to feel important and like they can contribute to their family. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the second part of that question is, do you think that knowing that there is a supplemental income in the form of government assistance, that fathers can leave knowing at least their family will be fed and provided for housing assistance? Well, um, you know what? I, I really, I don't think so. Okay. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a reason uh, for that, right? So uh -huh. again, speaking in this case as an African-American who, mm -hmm. you know, about 70 years ago, about 70 years ago, uh, mm -hmm. the marital rate for African-American people was extremely high. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was right on par with white Americans, Asian Americans, everybody else. Yes. And, um, you know, right around the time that they, they, the government decided to allow black Americans to participate in free housing and government housing, right? Because they were, we were not allowed to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, right around that time, you have a couple things happening. You have, uh, free housing being given to African Americans where it wasn't, so they saw that as a great thing, right? They mm -hmm. thought it was part of integration. But at the same time, you have drugs coming into the community on a level. You have a lot of African American men returning from war who were subjected to, you know, PTSD and things like that. Mm -hmm. And as the incarceration rate starting to increase. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned those things to say this. I don't think that Black men, particularly at that time, chose to remove themselves ad hoc from their home. Okay. okay. I do believe that there's a small percentage of black men and men in general who may have looked at this thing and said, you know what? Hey, man, I don't have to be here. I could skip out. I can go do something different, right? Mm -hmm. She's going to get much from over there, so I don't have to be here. Uh, but by and large, um, I think that there are so many external factors mm -hmm. uh, and internal that play into a man's mind by the time he decides that the, I'm going to let the government take care of my family. Mm -hmm. He's already been so far gone. Right. He, he's that that's like the, the last bit in terms of his psychological breakdown. But I don't think that, that leaving the home starts with what the government can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then to the other part about that is 
there are certain uh, ethnic groups in America who that hasn't impacted much at all. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about Asian Americans or white Americans, the, the two family um, household is still almost 70% for both groups. It's 68% for Hispanic Americans. So mm-hmm. that doesn't really impact the men uh, who also their families could have access to government assistance, but they don't, they don't leave. Mm-hmm. Okay. From my, uh, from, from my point of view, just being from New Mexico, you know, and it's pretty rural. It's like, uh, you know, it's a wild west mm-hmm. basically. Um, right. you, you go into the mountains of Northern New Mexico, you know, where it's really, really rural. And, mm-hmm. uh, what you see there is a poverty mindset, you mm. know, people, generational refuse to go to work. I got you. You know what I mean? And it's, it, it, I believe personally is, is it's a mindset, you yeah. know, my ancestors did this. So why do I got to do this? You know what I mean? And it's just continuous. Yeah. It's like, a, it's a generational curse basically, mm-hmm. you know, and they never get out of that cycle. Um, right. You know, uh, one of the the communities up there is an area called uh, Chimayo. Okay, well, it made national news being the heroin capital of the world. Got it. And, you know, they had this article where it talked about how generational generations, you know, they would share the needle, you know, from grandpa to the father to, to grandson. And it was like a pride thing. Mm. And it... Okay. And I looked at that. I'm like, how could you be proud of that? Like, seriously, right. like, you know, like, where, where, where did you go wrong to where you thought that that is like something cool to take pride in that? Hey, you know, this is what we've always done. Mm-hmm. You know, and okay. I think that's a lot of that mindset, you know what I mean? And you could probably touch base a little bit more about that being, you know what I mean? You deal with the mental health and stuff like that, you know, but uh, I thought that was really interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it is always interesting to see the generational toxicity that develops right mm-hmm. around poverty. Because I mean, you know, when when I hear stories like that, Dave, I, I then begin to ask myself, or I ask the people, you know, mm-hmm. what happened to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's been done to you, mm-hmm. right? Because because at the at the at the foundational level, even poverty itself is a type of trauma. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, you know, drug use is a response to uh, not being able to deal with a type of traumatic event or a set of traumatic events. So I begin to ask the question as well, you know, who are the people? What have they endured? What have they been faced with? How um, did they address it? What were the cycles of positive and negative behaviors? You mm-hmm. see? Um, but, yeah, I mean, when you start looking at those things, then you begin to come away with an answer. As to, okay. This is why they're sharing the needle the way they are, mm-hmm. okay? Because a lot of times, if they've been exposed to trauma, David, they really don't have the ability because trauma changes the way the brain functions. They don't really have the ability to make some of the best choices that other healthier people might make. Mm. No, and I I agree. I mean, just just some of the, you know, and once again, not knocking them or nothing like that, but man, just some of the some of the places out there, you can't even believe that they're living the way they are. You know I what see. I mean? It, wow. It's it's uh, yeah. it's pretty uh pretty sad, you know. Um, exactly. I want to dive into a little bit about the barbershop group. If you can share with our listeners a little bit about what you do there and how it came to be, <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Uh, the barbershop group um, is uh, a mental health organization that focuses on advocacy for men, right? And we've got five areas that we tend to to focus on. That is the mental health component, physical health 
financial health, social health, and spiritual health, mm-hmm. okay? Um, it, it grew out of my experience working in one particular um, residential treatment facility where both the residents and the direct care workers were dealing with some same social, mental health, financial issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been around since 2011. Um, you know, it started out kind of being like a community organization just going around to um, churches, community centers, mosques, wherever people, barbershops, wherever they would allow us to talk and have these conversations about how mental health was uh, extremely important and how to recognize some of the signs of mental illness and where to go to look for help, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you fast forward, we started doing some, uh, some retreats you know, uh, having men meet in central locations and just really uh, rub elbows with other guys. It's something that a lot of guys don't say that they want, but we know that they need. A lot of men function better face-to-face mm-hmm. in small groups, you know, 10 to 15 at a time, and get them to look at particular issues in their lives where they may need help and be afraid to talk about that uh, that need. Mm-hmm. Um, in other lives where they may feel off-kilter, you know, have some self-loathing, um, and, and really you provide them with resources so that when they go back to their respective locations, mm-hmm. they're able to get the help that they need, whether it's therapy, a financial advisor, spiritual advisor, whatever the case may be. And it's also about reading. you got to continue to develop yourself like that. But that's the main focus of the barbershop. And I tell people all the time, it is, I call it my missionary work, David, but it's not any particular religious affiliation, no particular, you know, background to it. But it, this work with men is spiritual work. And for a man to develop himself, it's still a spiritual work. Even if he's an atheist, there's a spiritual component to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're about. Yeah. Being an atheist takes faith, too. You still got to develop. Exactly. What are some of those issues that you see playing in that inner city that you guys are working with, um, you know, in the communities? And what do you see that keeps men from being present in the lives of their children? What do you run into? Well, um, you know, uh, when we talk about the inner city, uh, it's a continuation of that breakdown of the family that we, that I mentioned earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's the breakdown of the family. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, pockets and, and small pockets and big pockets where there are either overt racist tendencies or covert racist tendencies. There's also lack of opportunity. And when I say lack of opportunity, not just lack of opportunity provided by the people in power, but also on a local level in terms of homes, we don't have a lot of parents who are exposing their children to opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. So... It's a weird cycle, Dave. When you're a child who hasn't had a lot, you weren't exposed to a lot, you become an adult. If you continue along the same trajectory, you're not exposed to a lot. And you have children, and your children don't get exposed to a lot. Mm-hmm. And so it's a cycle. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and in order to break that cycle, at some point, you have to say, hey, as a father, I wasn't exposed to a lot. I didn't get a lot of opportunities. I need to do what I can to provide my children with more opportunities. And you start turning that around, Okay. Mm-hmm. And so those are some of the things that are impacting um, um, inner cities, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's still there's still a drug problem in inner city America that gets overlooked because a lot of times we focus on the opioid addiction, which tends to be something when we talk about opioid addiction, we're looking at suburban America, white America, rural America, 
-hmm. okay? Not inner city America. However, we've had some very famous celebrities who they've had opioid addictions and they died, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of those things still exist, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and it's also about infrastructure. In some cases, uh, the infrastructure doesn't, doesn't exist. The financial infrastructure doesn't exist. You can take a place like Detroit that has been underwater financially for a long time because people have made financially, you know, bad financial decisions. Mm -hmm. And that includes government officials and local people. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot. Yeah, no, Detroit definitely needs some help. I mean, wow. Um, I had a friend out there who was doing some uh, power line. He took his company out there and he was uh, rebuilding, you know, working out there out of Local 17. And uh, mm -hmm. he was just telling me, he's like, man, it was scary because a lot of the buildings were about to fall down. Right. He's like, it, 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 it looked like a bomb went off. Literally. Right. And uh, yeah. it was just crazy because they had to have uh, patrols, like uh, cop car patrols, driving around mm -hmm. the block while they're working in the area, restoring people's power. Right. You That's know? right. And he just said it was just like, he's like, it's something that no one talks about until right. you actually get out there and see it. And it's like, you know, what's what's really going on? You know, and I liken that to kind of uh, over here in the Four Corners area of, of New Mexico, um, the, the Navajo Nation. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I took a friend, we we're going to Utah and, uh, one of my friends, he came from Missouri, you know, and, uh, he's from Minnesota and, and all that stuff. And, uh, so he's been around and, uh, we we're driving through there and he had never seen the poverty level that those people experience in, in, in that part of the yeah. reservation, you know, in Shiprock and stuff like that. They're literally right. living in FEMA huts. Mm, okay. And I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they, those are those little plastic, like trailer type deals you know what i mean that they put people in like yeah. when hurricanes come or like katrina hurricane katrina right. came and stuff like that they live in those right. wow yeah and it's just it's just crazy you know what i mean but uh it's definitely some kind of reform that the government needs to look into and uh try to help them people out you know what i'm saying but um i wanted to read you this quote okay it says to be a good father we need to be a whole father otherwise mm -hmm. we're parenting with one foot in the past what do fathers you speak to do to become whole, to overcome the adversity? Um, you know, it, it's funny. When I hear that, that oh. quote and the question, I think about um, uh, something that was said, and I can't remember who, who said this quote, but, mm -hmm. you know, at a certain point when you mature, you make peace with your parents. You make mm -hmm. peace with um, the things that they were able to do for you, and you make peace with the things that they were not, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that that's one of the things that a lot of dads need to take a look at, uh, right? Because um, whether dad was present or present absent or completely absent, right? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a message. There was a lesson that we learned from our fathers and there was a lesson that we learned from our mothers. Mm -hmm. And we have to decide what we're going to do with those lessons with regard to our own children, right? Mm -hmm. And you heard me say that this work is a very spiritual work. If a father is not whole, if a father is not whole, the children are going to pick up on that. Yes. Okay. You're going to see it in the house. Everybody who interacts with those children are going to see it, you know, mm -hmm. and I can tell you, David, I can, I can matter of fact, when I see children, I can tell the difference between children who have a strong fathering presence in their lives mm -hmm. and those who don't. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and who don't. 
Um, and the, the fathers who are strong and in their children's lives, when you talk to them, you find out that they were able to make peace with their parents. Mm-hmm. They were able to make peace with some of the mistakes that they made. They were able to remain humble about the, the successes that they've had. And they share all of their lives with their children. Mm-hmm. Hey, Charles, can you elaborate a little bit about what you see in the children? I, mean, I, I find that kind of fascinating. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that I see with children who have a positive fathering presence in their lives is that mm-hmm. they're less prone to fall into this immediate gratification, right? Okay. This microwave culture that we are developing now that, that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, children are, they have a healthy amount of discipline. Um, it's not the type of discipline where somebody scares the living daylights out of them to get them to behave. But they have a general understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And when a father is in a child's life, um, you know, in early adolescence, when he does things like wrestle with his son and, and, and is playful and, you know, they banter and stuff, one of the things that the young child picks up on is the difference between play and reality. Mm-hmm. He learns the boundary from a healthy father, Yes. right, from a present healthy father, right? He learns, you know what, no. I overstepped the boundaries. I'm not going to go that far. All right. Uh, this is okay to do. That's not okay to do. This is how you talk to people. And this is not how you talk to people. This is how you deal with other men. Right. They mm-hmm. learn a, a lot about what's right and wrong within positive male culture. And they can differentiate between positive male culture and what is not positive. Mm. And they definitely need that role model to see that. Um, now, your work as an addictions counselor, um, have you seen, like, like when you're working with these men, right? Right. How have you seen the father wounds contribute to their addictions? Um, well, one of the things that I think about is um, a lot of guys, two things, Dave. One, uh-huh. you got a lot of guys who wanted to please, they wanted to please their father, mm-hmm. and they've never gotten that approval from dad, mm-hmm. Okay. Or uh, you have guys who they they needed a connection, mm. okay? They, they needed a connection with their father. They didn't get it, and instead they got abused from their father, mm. okay? So we're talking about attachment issues okay. regarding that, okay? Um, you know, in other cases, you're looking at some guys who they used with their dad. Their dad exposed them mm-hmm. to drugs and alcohol, other obsessive issues like pornography and what have you, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, yep, there are dads out there who have done that. But at the at the bottom of it all, you're talking about a healthy connection to dad. And so when you look at addiction, you look at the fathering role in some of these clients, you start finding out that they didn't have a healthy connection to dad. Mm-hmm. And how do you, like, how do you get that, how do you get them to wrap their brain around that like to to actually admit because i know a lot of guys won't admit that they're like mm-hmm. it's almost like they're in denial that their father did anything to them like how do you what? yeah you know yeah um i i think that we always say denial is not a river denial right right, it's right. Becoming, you know a, um a sobriety statement but you know if if denial is present, then it's going to be very, very difficult. We work with people through what's called the phases of change. Okay. 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 And if you are, we've got, we've got this thing called pre-contemplation. And basically, you know what, you're not even really thinking that anything is 
is wrong, that something needs to change, that you want to do something about it, you're nowhere along the other part of the spectrum, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times what it takes in that regard is it takes a, a pattern disruption. Something mm-hmm. will happen in that man's life to get him to go, oh, 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 crap, you know what, something's off. Now, it could be something major like a heart attack. It could be losing a job. It could be divorce, a car accident. Uh, a huge injury or something of that sort, right? Uh-huh. That will begin to, to get him to think about changing. But, um, you know, with some of these guys, one of the things that I like to talk about a lot of time is going through the reparenting process as an adult, mm-hmm. okay? Working with a therapist or a counselor on how to reparent themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do because you're going to open up a lot of wounds. But you start to talk to the inner child, Right, you have a conversation with the inner child instead of the inner child leading you. You sit down with the inner child and reason with the inner child in a healthy way, and that's kind of how you start developing this reparenting process. Mm. Man, that sounds like that's that's some deep therapy right there. <laughs> you know, those are yeah. some wounds that, I mean, to go down that deep, I mean, that's going to take some work. You know what I mean? It does. It really does. Um, It seems like a lot of emotional wounds that fathers cause, right, were from dads that never said I love you or you're important to me or I'm proud of you. Do you feel that this is a generational pattern for men and, you know, like passed down from father to son? Do you see that? Um, Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of the term toxic masculinity, right? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not opposed to some of the points of toxic masculinity that are very real. Um, but I, but I don't use that phrase a whole lot, but when I think about it, Dave, I do think about one of the components of it being a father who is not emotionally expressive and open with their children or with their sons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you, you know, talk about, Hey, you know, not hearing that say, I love you not hearing dad express value, right? Mm-hmm. And, and here's the other thing, Dave, I want to mention is it's not just important to hear dad say, I love you, and a lot of guys don't hear that. What they also don't hear is they don't hear dad say, why I love you, mm-hmm. okay? Because that's really, it's not just I love you, kid. It's here is why I love you. And to hear a dad list the bullet points, because I'll tell you, men actually love bullet points. I don't know if you know this. We love bullet points, okay? Mm-hmm. To hear a father say, I love you because of this, and because of this, and because of that, that means so much to a child, to a to a boy. Mm-hmm. And when he doesn't hear that, he's left wanting. Okay, uh-huh. he's left wanting. Yeah. Hmm. Man, I never heard that before. That's that's uh, interesting. As you said that, why why the bullet points? Well, uh, a lot of guys, you know, we don't respond to therapy the same the same way that women do all the time. Okay. No. Uh, when women get in therapy, they want to be more they want to be more expressive. They want to be more explorative, right? They want to mm-hmm. kind of meander through the the forest and, and pick up a flower here and a scene there and stuff like that. Guys don't want to do that. Listen, we want our problems solved and we need them solved. Matter of fact, speak straight to me. And so bullet points and number points speak straight to guys. When I do a lot of my writing and speaking, mm-hmm. that's the way I talk to guys, okay? Mm-hmm. Here's what you're going to have to do to change your life. One, do this. Two, do that. Three, do this. Okay? Mm-hmm. Repeat those. Now let's talk about how you're going to get those done. Okay? That's mm-hmm. where we are. Men respond to that. 
okay? They don't respond to the flowery language and, and things like that. That's not the way guys speak. A lot of guys aren't open to that. No, no, definitely not. You know, <laughs> um, I heard uh, Dr. Michael Gurian from the Gurian Institute in Spokane. He talked about how, you know, kind of like what you said, that women and men are different in therapy. And the reason being is because men, we can't sit for 45 minutes straight. You know what I mean? <laughs> we have these arteries that run down our legs or, you know, your femoral arteries and stuff like that. And when we sit down, mm -hmm. it releases this chemical to tell you that, hey, go ahead and rest. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why you get these dads who sit on the couch for 10, 20 minutes or whatever. And all of a sudden, they're couch potatoes. They don't want to get up. It's because their body right. naturally releases this chemical to say, okay, you can relax now. There's not a dinosaur chasing you down or anything like that. You know what I mean? And, uh, that's right. You know what yeah. I mean? So I, I thought that was kind of interesting that he, he touched on that, you know, and, uh, he also said that men need spatial things, you know, our, our brains are wired differently than women. So a lot of times mm -hmm. when you ask these children, what do you remember about your father? The boys will respond. Well, I remember he used to throw catch with me or throw the ball right. or whatever in the yard. It's because men are spatial, you know what I mean? So what he does in his practice is he'll throw a ball with them, you know what I mean? Right. Or get him to bounce a ball or, or do something, you know what I mean? And he said that yeah. we can implement that as fathers into training our children, you know, like when we're working on the car or whatever, you know, just using a wrench and stuff like that and just start talking to your boys. Start, hey, yeah. man, you know, yeah. how was school or whatever, you know what I mean? And they'll open up to you. Right. And I thought that was pretty interesting, right. you know what I mean? One of the best things, Dave, is, is, is you know, one of, the, one of the things that they're figuring out uh, uh -huh. uh, in terms of health, fishing, Fishing is great therapy for guys. Mm. Mm. Fishing. So generally, when we talk about activity, when you can keep a boy and a man active, you're probably going to get more substance out of him. You know, if you're focused and, you know, you have an end goal, you can get more out of him if you keep him active. And that's why a lot of boys don't do so well in school anymore is because, you know what, they got to sit there behind that desk, man, and do that thing like that. No, it's not working out for them. Hmm. <laughs> No, it is. I remember when I was a little kid, I'd get in trouble for getting up out of my desk, you know, and I was all right. over the place, you know, and thinking right. back, you know what I mean? They would have probably put me on Ritalin or something like that just because I was a rambunctious kid, you know. I wanted to climb on the bookshelves and everything else, you know. <laughs> so right. you. things have changed, definitely, you know. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think that, you know, back to that last question about the generational pattern for men and being passed down from father to son. Do you think that that's a big factor to absentee dads in uh, the poor communities rather than their living conditions? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that it's a combination, you know, combination. because if you got to, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's a combination because the dad who is providing is not going to allow a child to live in a, a, a in poor living conditions like that, right? We're going, mm -hmm. you may, you may be poor, but mom and dad are not going to let you know you're poor, mm. okay, because they're going to put both of their feet forward and make something happen, okay? Mm. Um, but but where, um, where we see it arise is when, you know, one person says, you know what, I don't have to do anything, man. You know what, I'm just going to sit on the block and do this. And then another person says, you know what, I'm going to sit on the block and do the same thing. And another person says, hey, you know what? Man, there's no jobs around here. There's nothing we can do about it. The man is on our throat. You know what, man? Mm -hmm. This is what we got. See, when you reinforce those ideas, mm -hmm. even though it may not be the reality, it becomes the reality. And I remember when we talk about trauma, 
when you've been traumatized, mm-hmm. everything that you experience, you experience through those traumatic experiences. Now, you have those lenses on, Dave, and it's hard to take them off, mm-hmm. okay? So you're going to view politics through that trauma. You're going to view race through that trauma. You're going to view religion through that trauma. You're going to view work through that trauma. Mm-hmm. Everything that you do is trauma in, uh, trauma-based. And so that's why a lot of therapists talk about trauma-informed care, mm. right? Because it helps address the generational pattern. And it says, hey, wait a minute. I understand that you think that that's normal life, okay? I, I know that that's been how you've gotten on for long, but let's look at how you got there. What are some different choices that you can make if you had this, okay? Or what would happen to you if you did that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of it, too, when you talk about people who have been traumatized, you're talking about someone who's stuck in survival. It's yeah. maladaptive the way that they try to survive, but it is a survival mechanism. It's not always healthy, mm-hmm. but they are they are trying to survive. And to healthy people, we look at them and go, man, what the hell are they doing trying to survive? Mm-hmm. They're just not healthy. No, okay? no, definitely not. And you see that, too, like a lot of people who have been traumatized and stuff like that. I, I've seen it in, in certain people where um, their limbic system is always in fight or flight. Right. And you literally see that. It, it almost looks like they're uh, a neurotic house cat. Like you ever see one of them cats where they're going to jump on your face or jump out the window. They, they don't know what they're going to do. You know what I mean? And you can right. literally see that fear in that person. You know, I, yeah. I, I've had people where they're afraid to sleep. You know what I mean? Like with their door closed. Right. So they'll leave their door open, but then they'll put like a 50 pound bag in front of the door. So you can't open it. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's crazy. You know what I mean? That's, that's someone who has a lot of trauma and they need help. You know what I mean? Right. And Absolutely. Uh, that limbic systems, I mean, I mean, I can go on and on about that. You know, I learned a lot from, uh, uh, my wife, you know, she, uh, she had contracted a Lyme disease and it was so traumatic to her mental state and her body that her limbic system was stuck in fight or flight Right. to where her body literally started becoming allergic to all foods and she was starving to death. You know what I mean? So she had to go through dynamic renewal. uh, I think it was DNRS dynamic uh, neural something or other. Okay. It was an Annie Hopper program where it literally retrains and remaps your brain. Okay. And that was the only thing that helped her. I mean, she can completely eat everything right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's how powerful our minds are. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But uh, I wanted to ask you this next question. An absentee father creates a paradox of feelings in their boys, right? Now, they have seen their mother's resentment and anger towards their fathers because he left her alone to raise the children. Do you feel that this confuses boys because they are males, right? And their mothers love them, yet also they're going to be the men whom their mothers hate. Right. So do you think that yeah. causes a, a mixture of feelings in them? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and, that, and that when you when you sit with a client and you start talking about attachment issues, right? Uh-huh. Uh, attachment, detachment issues. These are the types of things that you get the client to explore, right? Uh-huh. Um, so, and a lot of times, if somebody comes to me, you know, this is something that they've already taken a look at with with a uh, with a psychologist, uh, with a therapist, and then you know, I. I sit down with them and talk about the addiction aspect of it. Um, but yeah, it's very common that where, you know, a boy is growing up in a house, single parent household, if the mother 
um, does not, if the mother doesn't do a, a whole lot to to show a positive spin to the father, you know, that son wants to love dad. At the same time, he sees what dad put mom through. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, dude, I, I want to love you, but I hate you, but I love you, but I hate you. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, why did you leave us? You know, are the things that mom said true? And that child will hear mom say those negative things so for so long that when they meet dad, obviously they're looking, you know, you know dad proved me wrong. You can't prove me wrong. Yeah, you're never going to prove me wrong. They're mm-hmm. looking for a reason not to trust that father, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, you know, Dave, in some cases, there are guys out there who really aren't healthy dads. They just aren't, Yeah. Okay. Uh, but in other cases, you've got uh, a woman who may be scorned and, and, and resentful towards the father who, who left uh, or who was never around in the beginning. And uh, this comes out to the child, to the son, and it does make it difficult emotionally for a boy. Not just for a boy, it makes it difficult for men because, you know, what do we do as men? A lot of us grow up. We uh, have girlfriends, right? Mm-hmm. We get married, we have children and everything. And if dad isn't around, we're still trying to learn how to be father, husband, boyfriend, and we're learning all this stuff based on what mom said. And part of what mom said about dad and or men may have been negative. <laughs> mm. And I think that's so where you, like toxic masculinity comes from, you know, from these mothers who want to shame and bad talk the fathers, you know, you know what I mean? Just because they're jaded, you know? Yeah, that's that's definitely a part of it. Okay, we got to remember that that you know, with regard to toxic masculinity, the vast majority of serial killers, men, uh, the wars that have been started, men, right? So, so there's this. It's not all mom, but there there's a component I think in our society when we do talk about toxic toxic masculinity. Day, a lot of people don't even look at the female component, the part that mother plays yep. in helping to sustain the culture of toxic masculinity and you know when you think about certain cultures where uh the single parent uh ratio is extremely high where the custodial parent is the mom a lot of people don't want to consider hey wait a minute did mom contribute Mm -hmm. to any of this but when you get the men in therapy within four walls now it's something you talk about it's just unfortunate that Mm -hmm. in society we're not at a point where that's a conversation that a lot of people are open to having. Man, it's good that you opened that up because I can agree with you a hundred percent. Everybody's always wanting to blame the fathers, you know what I mean? But guess what? A lot of us fathers are out there busting our butts working. We're not around. So who's the primary caretaker? Right. Yeah. I mean that, (laughs) I hate to point the finger, but let's point the finger. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying everybody, but I mean, People right, really right. need to look and see. I mean, that's how important mm-hmm. we are as fathers and as mothers. Yeah. You and I think I mean? it's tough. It's tough, Dave, that you mentioned that. A lot of us are working. We're working really hard, right? Yeah. And I, and I think it's a, it now a lot of guys are struggling with being providers and being asked to be present, right? So work those 12, 13-hour days, but also come home and help cook and clean and put the kids to bed, read some bedtime stories, give them a bath, right? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of guys are feeling tremendous pressure from being asked to do all of that. I do think that for some men, it's going to be possible. They're going to get better at it, right? It's going to take yeah. some time. But I think that for other guys, 
I don't know if they're going to make it there. And so I think that that's a conversation that these men and women who are in partnership and who are in marriages together who have children, that's going to be something that they have to sit down and, and come to an agreement about, reasonable agreement about. But it's definitely pressure that guys are feeling. No, and I I agree. You know what I mean. You're when you're married, you're you know your partners. You know that's your that's your helper, right? Um, so you guys got to learn how to work together and you know get over your issues and whatever else. You know, so I I agree with right. you on that. Um, I wanted to <laughs> quote somebody who we both are very familiar with, a good friend of mine, good friend of yours, and you know Dr. Stephen Poulter, his book The Shame <laughs> Factor. Right? He talks Great about. Book how it's easier to discuss depressive bipolar issues than the intangible power of self-loathing, self-hatred, and addictive behaviors, which are all motivated by shame, okay? Mm -hmm. In your clients, how big of a role does shame play in their addictions? Um, It's huge. It's huge. You know, when you understand addiction, one of the things that I'll say about it is this. Addiction is a disease of loneliness. Okay. Okay. And it doesn't matter what type of addiction you're talking about, whether it's uh, drug addiction, porn, um, alcoholism, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of guys who are addicts, right, they may enjoy doing their drugs or whatever activity, that addictive activity with friends. But guess what? Even if those friends leave, they, they're still going to engage in that, addic- that addictive activity. They're not going to p- become sober because their buddies went away, okay? Mm-hmm. And in fact, in fact, a lot of guys will self-sabotage, get rid of their buddy so that they can do the drug and, and sit there in that self-loathing uh, state, okay? Because it's a pain-pleasure kind of thing that they can experience all by themselves. I can bring myself really, really low, and then I can make myself really high. And I can think about something that made me feel really awful and shameful, and I can bring myself high. And there's nobody around that I have to experience this with. It's all mine, mm. okay? So... Addiction and shame, okay? Mm-hmm. A lot of times, they believe it or not, um, a lot of times, a lot of family members don't want to get involved in the counseling of the addict, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Um, because eventually, once that client begins to sober up and start talking about their history, right, now they're talking about things that were done to them by family members. They're talking about things that were said to them by family members. Dave, I'm a recovering addict, and I got to tell you, you know, Growing up, I told you that I was treated badly because I spoke differently, because I thought differently, I looked differently. Uh, well, I was eventually raped because of that. Oh, okay, wow. uh, okay. And so let's think about that for a minute. Here I am. Here I am. My 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 family is telling me I'm not good enough. I don't look right. I'm not valued. I'm in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. And, and those are all statements of shame. And a lot of times they. What we do, and we don't know we do it, unknowingly we do it, is when we feel our own shame, we project it onto someone else. Well, when we project it onto somebody else, we have no control over their behavior and how that's going to impact them. And a lot of times it pushes that person to a place where they're unhealthy, whether it's addiction, cutting, some other vice, okay? So shame is almost always present in addiction. Wow. And, man, I thought that was pretty interesting that you said that it's a connection issue. You know, shame needs, right. you know, when it's lonely, right? Mm-hmm. So we're all made, you know, for connection. 
Wow. Right. And, and just to, to see that tied in with that, I thought that was, that was very interesting that you said that, you know what I mean? And, and once again, I'm, I'm, you know, I, uh, my heart goes out to you and I thank you for sharing, you know, that traumatic incident that, that happened to you. You know what I mean? I'm no, no person should ever experience that. So, you know, right. I, uh, right. you know, thank you for sharing that with us, you know, um, what advice can you give fathers coming from adversity to overcome and be better? Man, you know, one of the things that I think about is, um, you know, always, always be available to your children, right? Be open and honest with your children. You know, I asked our followers one time, Dave, I said, listen, you know, if your daughter or your son came to you uh, and said, hey, dad, you cheated on mom, why did you do that? Are you willing to talk to your child about that, right? Well, healthy fathers are going to have that conversation, Okay, mm-hmm. you've got to be able to be open. You have to be emotionally naked with your children. Okay, you you cannot wallow in self pity, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have a part of yourself that you despise and hate because if you have a part of yourself that you despise and hate, you're going to cover that up, right? Mm-hmm. Guys will cover that up. But what tends to happen is when that guy covers that up, he doesn't talk to his children about it. Guess what? His children go out and do they repeat some of those same behaviors because dad never spoke about it, mm. right? He never put the warning signs out there. He never put up the traffic signals, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's what it's like. So the one of the biggest things that I tell guys is be open and authentic. Practice open, authentic parenting with your children. Hmm. So is that, is it would it be correct to say that people who aren't, open, authentic with their children? Is that some of the, the worst mistakes fathers can make? Yeah, I, 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 I definitely think so. Um, you know, I, look, kids are smart. Yeah. And they're going to get smarter. They're going our children, they are going to be smarter than us. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they can see things and not necessarily, they may not necessarily be able to articulate it or think that they have the emotional space to articulate it. And then when they get older, they're going to articulate it. And they're going to let you know, yeah, dad, I saw that. I knew that. Mm. And they're going to, or they're going to ask you a question that prompts you to tell them what they partly already knew. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the big mistakes that a lot of fathers uh, make, you know? And I think too, I, I was reading in a, that once again, you know, Stephen Poulter's shame factor. I was reading in that book that uh, children, and I'm probably misquoting him, but children have the tendency to get you to look into that shame. They, they push it out of you, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, uh, definitely. I, I thought that was interesting. Can you, can you a little, elaborate a little bit about that, you think? Well, you know, um, I will I'll give you an example. Okay. okay? Um, with, my, with my own children, I had to work. They, in order to uh, avoid being a helicopter parent, right? Um, Because of my own negative experience, because of the abuse and things like that, I'm I'm raising children. I'm like, no, 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 you can't go here. No, watch that. No, what did they say to you? No, you can't sit with this person. Can't go to that school. Can't, you see what's coming out of my mouth? It's a whole lot of, a lot of can't do stuff. And that's part of that poverty mindset. Mm -hmm. See, okay. Um, and, And so with me, them wanting to get involved in gymnastics or you know, I have a son that's a pilot now and he's got to stay at the airport all day and, and do stuff and I can't be there with him and stuff, right? Yeah. You know, I had 
to talk to him about things that happened in my life in a constructive way while also letting them know, hey, look, you know what? That doesn't happen to everybody. That's not your major concern. I'm telling you how to be safe. Yes, but go live your life. Mm. Right? You got to do that. You got to do that. I've got a daughter now who's like, hey, dad, I want to go to the Air Force. And in my own mind, I'm thinking about some of the issues that some of the women are facing with regard to harassment in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. However, that's not what I present to my to my daughter. Okay, mm -hmm. I present all the amazing opportunities that she's going to have as a result of her time in the Air Force. You see, mm -hmm. no, it's all about perception, you know, and being able to. It's not really masking your fears, but not projecting your fears on them. Not projecting fears, yeah, not projecting. Okay, exactly. because here's the thing about it. You know, they one of the things we got to understand about us and our and how we relate to our children is this. Mm -hmm. Our external, our external voices become their internal voices. Mm. Okay, so we have to be mindful of what we put into our children. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and I want to liken that to what the uh, the Bible says. You know what I mean? It talks about speaking life or death. You know, choose life. Right. You know what I mean? That's right. So yeah. no, and I, I I agree with that 100 percent because I've seen women where they project their fears onto their kids. Mm -hmm. And they will carry those fears. Mm -hmm. And it's sad, you know? Right. And right. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how parents, we have that capability. You know, children truly, and I, and I told you this earlier before when I did your introduction about blessed is a man whose quiver is full. You know, mm -hmm. children are a blessing from God. You mm -hmm. know, and they've been given to us for an allotted time. Right. You know what I mean? So it's up to us to make the best, be that good steward. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And, and we're, we're going to make mistakes. We are. You mm -hmm. know, but like you said, be open and be responsible to be like, hey, I'm human. I made a mistake. This is what I did. You know, um, and just show them that we own it. Right? Right. That's right. That's right. Now, Charles, I wanted to ask you, do you believe that groups such as the barbershop group, right, or the show up dad group provide a community for fathers to go and get the help they need without fear of judgment? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's the whole premise, right? Mm -hmm. um, these, these types of groups, um, these types of groups are, they're new and they're not new. They've always been needed. And they've been, they've been in existence in certain parts of American history. Right. And in other cultures, right, where you talk about cultures that have uh, mentoring among males or they have uh, rites of passage uh, programs and stuff like that. So it's, it's been around, but now we're modernizing it and we're getting more focused. You see, um, these groups are extremely helpful. Uh, one of the dilemmas that we have, and I think you are aware of this, is, you know what, letting the men know, hey, we exist. Come here. We can help you. Okay, you're not alone. There are a lot of guys just like you. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. um, we have to work really hard to get that voice out there because right now, right now, let's be honest, there's not a lot of, uh, we're not given a lot of microphones for stuff like this. No. Okay, uh, a lot of guys aren't, aren't, aren't uh, given the opportunity to fully expose themselves, fully express themselves in a safe environment, say I need help, Feel comfortable saying I need help, right? Mm -hmm. Without undue judgment, okay? 
Um, there are a lot of different things that are happening in America right now mm-hmm. that try to that that maybe advertently and inadvertently try to you know squelch right movements like this, organizations like ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're extremely helpful, and I don't know anybody who's come across um, you know organizations that advocate for healthy men that have said, you know what, yeah, no. That's that's bad. We don't need that. <laughs> okay. No, I, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, I wanted to end with this quote. Okay, the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass is often quoted as having said, "It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men." With that in mind, what advice to father try? What advice would you give to a father trying to raise a family in the inner city? Um. I think that it's really tough, but I would say, you know, take a look at, at, at brokenness and understand this. Uh-huh. We, you, you hear a lot of people talk about generational toxicity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the same way that there is a generational toxicity, okay, or a generational curse, there's also a generational blessing, and I believe that. Yes. Okay. And we have to do... Uh, a lot to balance the two. And eventually what we like to see happen is we want to see more generational blessings than we see generational curses, okay? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I tell people is a lot of times, hey, don't spend so much time looking in that mirror behind you when you're driving forward, okay? If you're in your car, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to drive that car, David, while you're looking in that rearview mirror, mm-hmm. okay? You pass that. You know that stuff is back there. Okay, if you go back, it's going to be back there, but guess what? You're not moving forward. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to make a serious decision about your life. And the other thing I tell a lot of people is this, okay? When it comes to that question that you asked me, mm-hmm. I tell people to imagine themselves walking through a neighborhood and their hands are empty. And as they're walking through that neighborhood, they start picking up everybody else's trash, mm-hmm. okay? And they've got a destination to get to, but they continue to walk and they keep picking up everybody else's trash. And they pick up everything that they see on the road on the way to their destination. And by the time they get to their destination, they can't get anything done. Why? Because their hands are full of everybody else's trash. Mm. Okay? So I tell people, don't stop and pick up everybody else's trash. Don't let everybody walk through your head with their dirty shoes on. Mm. And that's something that you have to practice daily over and over and over and over again. Okay? Mm-hmm. In order to kind of help break the cycle for your own life and then to impact children. Mm, Man, I thank you for that, Charles. Uh, Once again, Charles, thank you for coming on the show, brother, and sharing all your great wisdom, dude. I want to get you on here again. Uh, Can you give our audience a brief uh, where they could reach you at real quick? Absolutely. Great. Uh, So, you know, you can follow uh, the barbershop group on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. We're out there like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have our own website. It's tbgmen.com. Uh, dot com again that's tbgmen.com and our podcast is on you know 10 or 11 uh podcast players apps out there uh so we're very accessible if you want to reach me you can simply go to facebook and type in charles catching uh, and send me a message add me i'd be more than happy to talk to you awesome once again thank you charles for coming on the show and thank you for being a show up dad brother all right thank you for having me